to help. Father, uh, we are also mindful of Martha Laura and, and her family. We ask that you would be with all of them. Father, now as we enter into this class, we ask that you would bless Tim, uh, open, help him to remember all that he has prepared, and help us to have eyes and ears and hearts prepared to to, to hear. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to open over to the book of Daniel. We are embarking on this brand new study. We just started last week, and I'm uh, grateful because I actually remembered to get my PowerPoint uh, put in here. So let's see here. I'm going to go back. Um, So I I mentioned to you last week, I'm not going to rehash everything, but I know there's a couple of you that weren't here. Um, But we're looking at the book of Daniel, the prophetic book of Daniel. And I told you over the last last time that we met that there's all kinds of different reasons why to study the book of Daniel. One reason is because it lays out prophetic history in advance. It's one of the unique books that we have in the Bible that actually tells about the future of humanity. And if you think about it, that makes a whole lot of sense because what is the overarching story of the Bible? The overarching story of the Bible is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything was beautiful and wonderful in the very beginning. It was as it was supposed to be. We were created in God's image. We were given a divine mandate to care for the earth and to take care of it and co-create with God and be representatives over the earth. But we we gave that up. We handed that over to Satan. And so at that point forward, we became slaves to the enemy. A usurper sat on the throne. And from that day forward, one world empire after another that was ruled by Satan began to to rule the earth. And you have um, five major world empires, right? You had the Egyptian world empire, which was the first major one. And then uh, later on, you have the Assyrian empire and the Babylonian empire. And then comes the Medo-Persian empire. Then comes the Grecian empire. Then comes the Roman empire. And on and on and on and on and on, right? But there's one kingdom that the book of Daniel prophesies and says that will one day overtake them all. And that's the kingdom of Messiah, Jesus Christ, the kingdom that you and I are a part of here. But we're not done yet, are we? Sin is not fully dealt with. Death is not fully dealt with. And the wickedness that exists in this world is not fully dealt with. The Bible predicts that one day all the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? It will be brought into the kingdom of God. So we're not there yet, and that's part of why we're going to be studying the book of Daniel, because it reveals Gentile history in advance. It's also one of the most validated books in the Bible. We talked about this too last week, that um, for many, many years, a lot of scholars believed that the book of Daniel was not written by the book of Daniel. And there was all kinds of reasons why we didn't get too deeply into those. But I showed you some of the reasons why it is one of the most validated books of the Bible. Um, Remember the most important thing I shared with you is that the book of Daniel was uh, in black and white, uh, translated into the Greek Septuagint version by at least a couple of hundred years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, all the events that the book of Daniel predicts after that just shows you the evidence that it is validated scripture, that it is prophetic scripture that reveals the future. Um, I did mention to you in Acts 17, verse 11, uh, it says the Berean Jews were 
of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said is true. And I told you last week, what that verse is telling you is do not believe a single thing that comes out of my mouth, okay? Um, we're going to be getting into scriptures that a lot of people have different views on, and I will do my very best to present the different views, but I will share with you what I believe as well, okay? And it's up to you to take that, run with it, study on your own, study to show yourself approved to see what you think about these things as well. Um, a few key dates, and, and this is kind of where I wanted to, to pick back up because I don't think we got this far, did we? Can anybody remember? I don't think so. Um, the very last thing that I remember telling you guys about was what happened in 332 B.C. This was uh, a, a fascinating story um, that, that several of you commented on, didn't know about. But Alexander the Great was on his conquest to conquer the world. Remember this story? And uh, before the age of 30, he conquers the whole known world. It's an incredible story. Well, his whole entire career is outlined in the book of Daniel in advance, before it ever actually happens. But Alexander the Great marches in to Jerusalem. He's ready to capture the city. And the high priest that year is a man by the name of Yadua, or Jadua. And he comes out, and God had given him a vision before Alexander the Great got there. Basically was telling Jadua, hey, when, when Alexander gets here, show him where he shows up in the scriptures. <laughs> so here comes Jadua out with the scroll, this old scroll that's now a couple hundred years old. And Alexander the Great comes up, and he rolls that scroll out, and he shows him where he's talked about actually in the Bible, and it impresses him so much um, that he spares the city and that he leaves. So again, it's just yet another example. Josephus tells us this story, but it's yet another example of how the Bible is true. Now, I won't get into the archaeology of the book of Daniel um, a whole, whole lot, uh, but we could do a whole class. And I've done classes on archaeology. That was actually my forte. That was like my, uh, you know how we always have hobbies and stuff? You know, people say, well, what's your hobby? My, my, I love to read the Bible, love to study the Bible, but my, my hobby is Bible archaeology. Um, the first thing that I thought I was ever going to be was an archaeologist. Uh, I, went to, I went to Lipscomb University. I studied biblical languages because uh, you have to have Greek and Hebrew down before you go up to the University of Cincinnati, uh, or Boston University, rather. Uh, Boston University is where you get your anthropology degree. And then my plan was to get that and go over to Israel and live in Israel and study at Hebrew Union. And uh, that was my trajectory. That was where I was going in life. By the time I graduated high school, I was going to be an archaeologist. And uh, uh, God had different plans and that whole change. But there is so much material that we could talk about. I have done a class before on the archaeology of the book of Genesis. I've done a class before on the archaeology of the book of Exodus. We could do an entire class on the archaeology of the book of Daniel. But let me just say... There is evidence after evidence after evidence. I often say this. Every time you turn a page in the Bible, it's just like turning a spade of dirt in the ground. You are always going to find more and more and more that validates these incredible stories. But there were all kinds of critics, especially at the turn of the century, when we did not have archaeology as a science. Um, there were these, these enlightened critics that came along in the early 1900s, and they would say, there's so many fallacies in the book of Daniel. There's so many people that are talked about, there's kings that are mentioned, there's dates that are mentioned, there's cities that are mentioned, there's places that are mentioned, and we don't have any evidence of these things. And so they treated a lot of the stories in the Old Testament, like the book of Daniel, like fiction. And then what happened was you had a guy in the early 1900s, and I tell you what, if, uh, 
If there ever was a man that was a real Indiana Jones, it was Sir Austin Henry Layard. And I have, I have an, one of his original books in my library. It's one of my treasured possessions. It's uh, dated 18, uh, 1820 something, I believe it is. But basically, he, had, uh, he, he came out of um, uh, the, uh, kind of the British Museum. His dad worked at the British Museum. He was so excited about these things. And he uh, had gotten funding from, uh, from, from Great Britain to go and to lead some of the first expeditions. Well, you know what he did? He took the Bible. And he used the Bible as a roadmap. And this man found Babylon. He found Nimrod. He found Ur. Um, he found a lot of the cities that's talked about in Assyria. There's this one part that's so fascinating. He said that when he finally found the palace of Sennacherib, which is mentioned in your Old Testament, he said there was a big hole in the ground and the Bedouin tribes had said, oh yeah, these, these ancient sites that are talked about in the Bible, they're scattered all over the place. And you know, he would see a big mound of dirt and nobody would know what it is. And he would dig down in the bottom of that mound of dirt and he would find palaces that were still intact. In fact, when he went down in Sennacherib's palace, he said that there was still a table there that still had a bowl there that had dates, dates that were, that were like thousands of years old that were still sitting in that bowl. So anyway, not going to get into it because like I said, we could do a whole class on it, but um, they discovered palaces, they discovered furniture, they discovered records. Um, all these cuneiform tablets, we couldn't read them. Well, finally, they cracked the language and they found out so many things corroborated the stories of the Bible. But we found the evidence. We found Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in your Bible. We found Belshazzar's palace. Belshazzar is mentioned in the book of Daniel. Darius, we found his tomb. We know where Darius lived. So over and over and over again, um, the book of Daniel has been validated. But let me give you what I think is the best evidence for the authenticity of the book of Daniel. And that is that Jesus himself quotes Daniel three times. And he calls him the prophet Daniel. So if you don't believe that Daniel wrote Daniel, then lovingly what I tell people is you're going to have to take that up with Jesus. Because apparently he didn't know either, right? Um, but they will. They'll say, well, you know, this part of Daniel must have been written here. And then a hundred years later, this section of Daniel was written Jesus quotes the book of Daniel three times and he quotes out of all three sections. Isn't that amazing? Almost as if the Holy Spirit anticipated the critics ahead of time and uh, that Jesus just destroys that. Um, he calls him Daniel the prophet. Now, was Daniel a prophet? The trick question. He was a prophet. But why is he not contained in the prophets? Sandy, you probably can think about this a little better because the Old Testament is gathered together in, in categories. It's not chronological. You have the writings, right? And you have, the pro, you have the law, the writings, and the prophets. Well, Daniel is not in the prophets. Can anybody guess why? I hear crickets. Okay, let me give you a little clue. The rabbis regarded Daniel as a governmental figure, right? Prophet is a role, right? So he was a governmental figure. From the time of his career on, he was always at the right hand of the king, okay? So he's a magistrate who happened to have prophetic utterances. He, he did not serve in the office of a prophet. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's why his writings were collected separately. So his writings are actually considered history which is interesting because it's history also in advance, but he's, it's still considered history. Also, um, another tidbit. Daniel is mentioned three times in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14, 14, also verse 20, 
and also in 28 verse 3, and he was classed along with Noah, Job, and uh, Noah and Job. So Daniel is, is set up uh, by Ezekiel to be the standard to which we measure wisdom. And those were his contemporaries, by the way. Uh, Ezekiel uh, was a contemporary of Daniel. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. Okay, a few key dates that I want to get into, and I'll have a little help up here on my screen. I'm going to try to go back and forth here. But a few key dates you need to remember. In 612 B.C., Nineveh falls to an alliance between Babylon and Media. Up until this point, Babylon has been a city-state. It's been a vassal of Assyria. And now the Assyrian Empire is starting to crumble. It's starting to fall. And the Babylonian Empire is starting to rise. About three years later, make sure I get this right here. Okay, let's turn it off and turn it back on. There we go. About three years later in 609 BC, after Nineveh falls, the only remaining power in that area in the Middle East is Egypt. So you have a pharaoh that's on the throne by the name of Necho. He is mentioned in your Bibles in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. And the pharaoh Necho realizes that Babylon is rising to power. And so there is a power vacuum that they start to fight over. Well, guess which country is right in the middle of this power vacuum? Israel. Okay. So Pharaoh Necho goes up to lead an army against uh, the Babylonian uh, ruler. And in 606 BC, you have this incredible battle that's known in history, known as the Battle of Carchemish. And Nabopolassar is the, is the ruler in uh, Babylon. But he has a young son who's a big upstart. He's showing lots of promise. He's going to take over the throne for his daddy. And he's an extremely, um, extremely uh, well, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? He's, he's a good fighter. He's a good warrior. He's good on the battlefield, if you will. So Nebuchadnezzar, you guys familiar with that name, aren't you? Nebuchadnezzar leads an army uh, down to meet um, the Egyptian Pharaoh Necho. And they meet on the west bank of the Euphrates River. And not only is that battle mentioned in history, it's talked about in the history books, but it's also mentioned too in your Bibles. In Jeremiah chapter 46, verses 1 through 6. Um, most people believe that the Battle of Carchemish is the event that marks the beginning of the Babylonian Empire. Because what happens, he goes down there, he kills uh, Pharaoh Necho, and now because Assyria is defeated, Babylon is to rise, there's nobody else in the area to oppose him, and so you have the rise of the Babylonian Empire. Now, why do I bring all that up? I bring that up because after uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes down and he defeats the Pharaoh Necho, which is in Egypt, and I wish I had a map, but you guys generally know what it looks like, right? That he came over, here's Israel, he comes through Israel, goes down to Egypt, defeats Pharaoh Necho. Now, on his way back, Nebuchadnezzar decides to lay siege to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is, goes under siege three times, okay? This is the first time. This is the first siege of Jerusalem. He takes control of the city, and he imprisons the king. The king was Jehoiakim, all right? Later on, he releases Jehoiakim. Uh, he, he basically makes him to be a vassal king. He says, listen, if you behave yourself, you're a good boy, pay taxes, I'll let you be a king, okay? 
Um, he plunders the temple. He takes a lot of treasures back to Babylon so he can set them up in his museum uh, that he has there. He takes a lot of hostages. And why, does they, why do they do this? The, the idea behind this is that they would take the very best, the brightest, the smartest, the nobles, the ones who are of noble birth, the, the ones that you would see that would be in charge of things. He would take them out of the country he would take them back to his land and he would raise them up to sit in his court. Does that make sense? So the best and the brightest of whatever conquered territory you went into, you would bring them in. And then you would leave the vassal king to tend to the rest of the people. Well, um, among those young people that were taken were four guys, one of which was Daniel. Daniel was probably a teenager. Some, some, some people say he was, uh, he was 16, 17, 18 years old, somewhere around there. There were uh, three other guys, and we don't even know their Hebrew names because you've heard the story so much about them being thrown into the fiery furnace. You only know their Babylonian names, and what are they? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You didn't know you could speak Babylonian, did you? See, you just translated that right out of, right out of Hebrew into Babylonian, okay? All right, so Daniel's taken to Babylon. He's just a teenager. He's taken during the first siege of Jerusalem. The first siege of Jerusalem begins a 70-year period. Now, this is very important. You want to mark this down in your notes. This first siege of Jerusalem begins a 70-year period that was prophesied by Jeremiah to be the time of Israel's servitude to the nations. They were to be held captive in Babylon for 70 years. Can anybody tell me why 70 years? Does anybody know why they had to go to Babylon in captivity for 70 years? Okay, God had basically told them many times, says, listen, if you guys don't listen to me, if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't do justice in the land, if you don't uh, follow my laws and my decrees, then I'm going to punish you. I'm going I'm to uproot you from the land, right? Anybody else have anything to add? Why 70 why that number? Is there a reason? Yes, Sandy. Okay, that's good. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. So just from the meanings of the numbers. Okay, the reason for the 70 years Babylonian captivity is given to us in 2 Chronicles 36. For 490 years... They failed to keep the sabbatical year. Now, what is a sabbatical year? Now, in, in Judaism, every six days, you have a seventh day. What's the seventh day? Sabbath. Sabbath day. What do you do on the Sabbath day? You rest. Okay, same thing. Every six years, you tend to the land, you farm your land, you grow crops. But in the sixth year, you have a what on the seventh year? Uh, seventh year. And that's that year, you don't do anything. You let it rest. And God made a promise. He says, listen, if you obey me, then I promise you on the sixth year, you'll have so much bounty from that crop, you won't even have to do it the next year. Well, guess what? For 490 years when they were in the land, they completely just ignored that rule. So God says, you owe me 70. That's where the 70 comes from. God lets the, re the land rest he gives it its Sabbath day rest all at one time for 70 years. And that is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And you mentioned the year of Jubilee, by the way. 
that's also another one. This is where we get the Shemitah, right? You've heard Jonathan Kahn talk, talk about the Shemitah. Every six years, there's a seventh. That's a Shemitah, a seven-year period. Well, if you do that seven times, you come to year 49, the year 50 is what's, is what's called the year of Jubilee. And, and that's the big one, right? And what happens on the year of Jubilee? Everything resets. Everything resets, right? Um, don't confuse that with the great reset that people are talking about today. That is not a jubilee. That is not a year of jubilee. It's going to be billed like a year of jubilee, but it is not a year of jubilee. Um, year of jubilee would be basically this. If you were in slavery, if you had been sold into slavery, if you'd sold yourself into slavery, now you're free. If you've had debts, now they're canceled. If you sold property and, and whatnot, now it's back with the family that it's supposed to be. Everything starts over. Okay. Um, so Jehoiakim let's talk about Jehoiakim he's still the king in Jerusalem again he's a vassal king he's subject to Babylon the problem with Jehoiakim is the same problem that a lot of leaders have today when they don't follow God they surround themselves with yes men and Jehoiakim has a lot of false prophets that he has surrounded himself with and basically these false prophets are just constantly lying and they're telling him everything's going to be fine. They're telling him uh, that they need to fight against Nebuchadnezzar, that this is not God's will. Um, why would you think that it'd be God's will to destroy the nation? It's not God's will. This man is a, a pagan. He's, he's here to destroy God's people. And, and we've gone to the Lord, and the Lord has told us that you need to fight back. That's exactly what they were saying to him. So they were lying, false prophets. Well... There were two other prophets that were running around around this time, and they kept saying, no, don't you dare. Don't you dare listen to these other prophets. They're lying to you. I promise if you don't listen, there's more destruction that's going to come. Those two prophets were Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and both of them were preaching at the same time. So they keep saying, submit to Nebuchadnezzar because this is God's will. God is using Babylon as an arm of judgment against Israel. Uh, you know, but the problem is, is that Ezekiel and Jeremiah, both when they keep preaching this message, what do they do? They don't want to hear it. They're treated like traitors, right? And so what happens? Well, Jehoiakim ignores Jeremiah and rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And then Nebuchadnezzar comes back to Jerusalem a few years later. And he lays siege against Jerusalem again. And there's a five-year battle that takes place. And during this time, Jehoiakim dies. You can read about that in Jeremiah 22, verses 17 through 19. His son, by the name of Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, um, he's also, he's got three names in the Bible, actually. Coniah, he's got three names in the Bible. So Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, and Coniah are all three names of the same person. He takes over from his dad, and he reigns until the siege is over. That's Jeremiah 22, verses 24 through 40. So what happens? At the very end of the siege, Jeconiah is captured along with 10,000 captives. Uh, you've got 1,000 skilled artisans. This is all talked about in your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Ezekiel is captured at that time. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So now, this second big group of people is taken to Babylon. So now you've got two prophets in both places, both preaching the same thing. You've got Ezekiel over in Babylon, and he's preaching to the captives, and you've got Jeremiah left over with the, the people in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Clear as mud. Okay, I'm kidding. All right. So Jeconiah is captured, 
And his uncle is placed as a vassal king, and his name is Zedekiah. Now, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both, they're warning the king, Zedekiah. They keep warning him against rebellion. They keep on saying, stop listening to the false prophets. Stop listening, thinking that everything's going to be fine. Don't rebel. They keep on telling him, listen, this is God's will. Nebuchadnezzar is being used by God to bring judgment upon the land of Israel because of their disobedience. By the way, can we just pause for just a moment? There is, it's so strange to me why we can read about this in the Bible, and there are so many Bible teachers today that don't believe that that's still true, that God judges nations based upon their collective obedience. God judges nations based upon their um, stance on what is just and what is not just in their land and their culture. God judges nations based upon the morality of that nation. And there is a line in the sand that only God knows. He did it with Nineveh. Remember Nineveh? Years and years and years earlier than this, he did it with Nineveh. And he says, if they don't repent, then I'm going to bring judgment upon their land. And he sends the prophet Jonah. Well, it turns out they repent. God gives that nation a hundred more years. Now, a hundred years later, they're destroyed by the Babylonians at this time right here. Why? Because their hearts became corrupted again. Right? So God does that same thing. God judges nations based upon where they are collectively as a people. God judges nations based upon the leaders of those nations. That's why it's important to make sure that we try to have good leaders in our country. All right? Okay, so by this time, Zedekiah ignores Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all the warnings. He yields to the false prophets, and now Zedekiah rebels. By this time, Nebuchadnezzar has had enough. Um, he has dealt with these kings not listening and rebelling over and over and over and over and over. And the prophets, if you go and you read Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they keep on saying, look, if you don't listen, both times they've come and captured people, but they've spared the city. They haven't destroyed the temple, thank goodness. But they tell Zedekiah, if you don't listen, if you rebel one more time, Babylon's going to come back and they're going to destroy the city and they're going to destroy the temple if you don't listen. What happens? They don't listen. Okay, they rebel. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He destroys the city. He levels the temple completely. And that takes place in 586 B.C. It's a very key, key date in the Old Testament. 586 B.C. Okay. It's interesting. That was a long bell. It's interesting to, to read some of the prophecies because you can see just how accurate these prophecies are. Let me give you an example really quick right here. I thought this was interesting. Okay, that's the third siege. I forgot to pull that up here. Okay, look at Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13. I will spread my net for him. Now, this is talking about, this is talking about Zedekiah. I will spread my net for him, and he will be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylonia, the land of the Chaldeans, but he will not see it. And there he will die. Now, if you were just reading Ezekiel and had nothing else, that prophecy makes no sense, does it? it think about it. I will bring him to Babylon, but he'll never see it. What does that even mean? 
Well, it makes sense because, see, that's Ezekiel over in Babylon prophesying about what's going to happen to Zedekiah. Now listen to what Jeremiah in Jerusalem says about the same thing. There at Riblah, he witnessed this, by the way. Jeremiah was there when this happened. There at Riblah, the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also killed all the nobles of Judah. And then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. Isn't that fascinating? Horrible that it happened. I mean, he had to watch his sons be slaughtered right in front of him. That was the last thing that he saw. And he had his eyes put out. Okay? But, but here's the thing. Bible scholars, modern readers, will take a passage like Ezekiel and they'll say, see, the Bible's not true. That's just ridiculous. That makes no sense. But it's because... The prophets are very specific about what happens. What happens is their eyes are put out, then he's taken to Babylon. Both prophecies turn out to be absolutely true. Okay, um, I think we're out of time. This is a very good place to stop. So next week, we're actually going to get into uh, the organization of the book of Daniel. Uh, we'll talk very briefly about what you're going to find in some of the chapters. And I'm going to present to you a way of reading the book of Daniel that's going to make it a lot easier to understand, okay? Because the book of Daniel is not written in chronological order. It kind of hops around. What we're going to do is we're going to put it in order. And we're going to read it in chronolog chronological order. We'll talk more about that next Sunday. Okay? God bless you guys. Love you. And we'll see you in a few minutes for worship. Okay?